it's uh, good to see everybody this evening. A uh, couple of things before we get started, just a reminder of the Israel conference coming up and that uh, we're not providing uh, child care uh, per se, okay? There's a couple people in the congregation who uh, normally come and bring their children and watch them, and that's fine. Mark. And... Uh, want to make sure the right people hear that I'm, you know, sometimes you can talk about somebody, which I sometimes do. They have no clue you're talking about them. <laughs> Not a clue. The other announcement is that Jim Myers has been playing a numbers game this summer, and he's got new numbers, new address, new phone numbers, things, information like that, and he's got some cards. Uh, are you putting those out here? Where are you putting them? Out, all over. You can't miss them. It's like manna. So um, information there, so get, pick up a card so you know uh, that information. You can put it somewhere so where you see it and can regularly pray for them. And he was telling us at a prayer meeting that uh, the good news is that though there was a substantial loss of finances with the theft, the break-in at their um, office for the college in, um, uh, in, in Kiev, that 60% due to generous donations of people who have stepped up, uh, 60% has been uh, restored through those generous contributions. And so there's still uh, the other 40%, but the Lord owns everything, so it's not a problem for the Lord to provide these things. So that's great, um, great news. Also, in terms of the Israel conference coming up, we have... um, Need for volunteers to help with uh, bringing food and set up, serving, uh, clean up afterwards. There's some sign-up sheets out in the fellowship hall. And also, um, there's. I don't think we have a need anymore. I think uh, we have a place for all of the speakers that we need rooms for, and that's been taken care of. Um, the only other announcement is to keep start praying now that it will not rain when we have the men's camp out October 15th. I think that... This year, especially, we need to start praying now for no rain that weekend. All right. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started uh, in the word, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we're all uh, spiritually prepared uh, to study the word, that we're in right relationship with the Lord, so uh, God the Holy Spirit can use that which we learned tonight to be challenged and to use it for our spiritual growth and our edification And after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are indeed extremely grateful for your grace and your goodness. We're so thankful for the way in which you have resupplied these missing finances from for uh, Jim Myers and the ministry and the college, and we're just thankful for that. It's such a great testimony 
uh, to the grace orientation of your people to respond in this way and in your provision demonstrating that uh, no matter how uh, difficult times may look, you are always there to provide for us and take care of us and enable us to do that which you have uh, planned for us to do. Father, we pray for uh, the Word of God College as they are getting ready for a new semester. We're thankful that this year they have a record enrollment and uh, possibly even even uh, more than more than that. Uh, than what we know right now. There may be a couple more, and we're just so thankful for that and the opportunities that that represents. And we continue to pay, pray for Ukraine and for peace there and stability as uh, uh, the Russians are making a lot of moves and actions as if they're and th- very threatening actions, and we pray that, that you would restrain that and uh, there would not be any, any uh, hus- further hostilities uh, against Ukraine. Father, we pray for us as we study your word tonight that we might be challenged to be students of your word, true disciples of the Lord, uh, students who are learning, acquiring not just information, but learning to apply and to live out that which your word uh, has provided for us. And we pray that you would uh, help us to be objective in evaluating our own lives and our own spiritual walk that we may continue to press on to spiritual maturity. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Before we get into the Word tonight, there's a couple of things I want to uh, just recommend to everyone here, things we need to be aware of. Uh, I was given a few uh, weeks ago a biography. As you know, this has sort of been our Holocaust summer because we went over to Israel to, for a Christian leadership seminar for a 10-day study program. And since then, uh, both uh, Pam and I have done a lot of reading in terms of the Holocaust. She's done some additional training at the Holocaust uh, Museum here in Houston. And then we just went to this follow-up course uh, for uh, former graduates of the uh, course in Israel. And I'll be talking a little bit more about some of the things there. It just really, as I said Sunday, it really reinforced in my mind the importance of this conference we're doing in Israel just because we need to be better informed about what is going on in the world around us. If you were not here last night, which that applies to most of you who are here tonight, but there were a few who were here last night, Act for America, which is an organization related to Brigitte Gabriel. If you don't know who she is, she was a reared Muslim, Lebanese background. She's extremely outspoken, along with several other Uh, key people in the national scene, exposing the real intent of Islam, Islamic migration, what uh, Muslims believe. John was here last night, and last night there was a speaker who is an Austrian, although she speaks English as if she was a native-born American. Uh, I don't know if she spent any time here, but she gave, she was uh, uh, in, in between 2004 2008. She became increasingly involved and increasingly outspoken in giving lectures and talks to different groups all around Austria about um, the dangers of this refugee incursion. Uh, we just started hearing about some of this uh, four or five years ago, but it's been going on probably for 20 years at least, maybe 30 years and exposing what the Muslims believe and what their agenda is. In 2009, she was brought up on charges and tried in 2010 for hate speech. And since it didn't quite fit hate speech, they trumped up a charge, 
that was related to the defamation or denigration of other people's religious beliefs because she said that Muhammad, who took a wife, Alicia, uh, Aisha, at the age of six, had uh, uh, consummated the marriage when she was nine, and she referred to him as a pedophile. And so they came up with a very strict, rigid, narrow definition of pedophilia and said, well, what he did doesn't fit that, so you're defaming a religious leader, and they convicted her on that that charge. And what she was telling us was giving us information about how there's no such thing as freedom of speech, especially if it involves objective criticism of Islam. And um, uh, it, it was okay to video it. Eddie did the video. Uh, we're not going to put that up on our website, but if you're interested in getting that, you can talk to Eddie about that and uh, get a copy of that. I encourage you to do so because um, <laughs> we just don't get the kind of information and even even the conservative media in this country really doesn't give us a lot of information about what's going on in Europe, and it's just um, just terrible. And if you uh, can go to GatestoneInstitute.org, GatestoneInstitute.org, uh, that is an excellent source of information about what is going on in in, in Europe, and um, um, it's. Um, I really recommend that. It's a good source of information. So anyway, just a little bit about that. Uh, a few months ago, or a few weeks ago, rather, I was given a book related to Holocaust uh, studies, and uh, it's the biography of a man whose pen name was Zvi Kalisher. And if you have read the Israel My Glory magazines for any length of time, you'll recognize that name because for at least as long as I've read it, which is probably about 25 or 30 years, and, and probably much longer, he has written a column uh, in Israel My Glory magazine. He was Jewish, a Messianic Jew, a believer in Jesus Christ, who lived in Israel, who lived his life as a tremendous witness that Jesus was indeed the, the, the Messiah. And he was a Holocaust survivor. When he was 10 years old, uh, the Nazis invaded Poland. His uh, brothers and sisters and parents were all killed in the Holocaust. What saved him was his mother had taken him to an orphanage and had dropped him off there. And when she left, that was the last he ever saw of anyone in his family. And he uh, just, it the book describes his life. It's well written. It's very interesting. There's also a video that um, Friends of Israel produced in 98 called Zvi, that's spelled Z-V-I, Zvi, colon, The Return. And it's sort of a documentary and reenactment taking him back to the home where his parents had lived that still existed, at least in the late 90s, uh, outside of Warsaw, and takes him through, and it covers what's in the book, and it also, um, uh, is, sections of it are, are reenacted, and it's, it's done uh, pretty well. And it's a fascinating uh, story, and it's great to read stories of Holocaust survivors who became believers, because that shows real hope. And, uh, it's, and it's also encouraging because of the way this man uh, lived his life as a witness and testimony for the Lord in what was, in many, at many times in Israel, a somewhat hostile environment for Jews who had become uh, become Christians. And so I would encourage you on that. And then the other thing is, in terms of this 
thing that we went to this last week in uh, at um, in Washington D.C. Both the uh, Institute for uh, both the event at the Institute for Holocaust Studies in Israel that we attended in May, as well as this event, were uh, substantially funded. This last week was completely funded by the Museum of the Bible. How many of you have heard of the Museum of the Bible? Yeah, about three of you. I really encourage you. Their website is museumofthebible.org, and it is fascinating what they what they have done. And I want to play a couple of short videos for you because something that Jim has been emphasizing for as long as I've known him and I've been emphasizing for many years is the importance of reading your Bible and uh, knowing your Bible. And even if you're reading it and there are sections where maybe it's not the best translation or there may be some things that confuse you, well, we all know how to read. You can read the Morning Chronicle and be confused. And some people say, oh, well, I never read the paper. I've heard people say that. I don't ever read anything because it might confuse me. I'm just going to listen to what my pastor tells me. And you you can't live a life like that. Um, We need to know the Bible and it elevates our understanding of everything. Some people may ask the question, well, how can I learn to really appreciate good food? Well, you'll never learn to appreciate good food if all you do is go to Burger King and McDonald's. You have to eat good food prepared by good chefs. And, and if, that's, if you eat good food, quality cooked food, then you will develop a taste for good food. How do you develop a taste for quality music? Well, not by listening to pop music on the radio. You develop the ability to appreciate and, uh, and, and develop your taste for music by listening to really good music. And the way you develop your understanding of good thinking is to read the Bible. And for truth is to read the Bible. And it elevates you. And one of the things that impressed me is the impact, and I'll talk a little bit about this, is we live in a world where a lot of us just feel like Jesus is coming back tomorrow. He's got to. It can't get any worse. They're throwing Christians in jail. They're arresting people who want to speak out against Islam. How can it get any worse? Trust me, it can and it will. But there are things that are happening today that are remarkable. And this Museum of the Bible is one of those things that's happening. They have a tremendous amount of money behind them that they have uh, that they have raised. They still need to raise a lot more. The cost of building the Museum of the Bible is going to be a billion dollars. That's with a B. A billion dollars. And what they've already accomplished is just extraordinary. Uh, they, it is one of the highest tech operations that I've seen to date. Um, I've seen a couple of other high tech museums, but this is cutting edge. When it is completed and opened in November of 2017 next year, it will be the third largest museum in Washington, D.C. It is three and a half blocks south of the Capitol building. It's a couple of blocks south of the mall, and it is, uh, uh, just remarkable how the Lord has opened the doors. They started construction, I think, in 2000 and, uh, 2012. And to get to build a, a museum of this time, this short a time, is, is nothing short, uh, nothing uh, less than miraculous. So let me play the first of these. The Bible, as a historical artifact, if we look at it just in that way, is vital 
to understanding Western culture. The Bible as a book is more than just a, a transmission of a narrative or a history or any kind of... Uh, That's really fuzzy, Eddie. Because it doesn't sound like that on my home computer. Literary tradition. It is, in essence, the book of all books. The selling book of all time still has more impact than any other book ever written. The Bible significant enough. It's talking about itself. It's been on itself. What do you want me to do? Turn mine down, okay. Let me get it back on the screen. Okay. Turn mine down. Oh, I don't know why that keeps doing that. Okay. When we first got started, uh, we were just looking at buying an artifact or two, and uh, we kept uh, having okay, opportunities being presented. And we okay, just kept let me back it up to the beginning. Understand that? When we first got started, uh, we were just looking at buying what? an artifact or two, and uh, we kept uh, having opportunities being presented, and we just kept buying. Today, uh, we have over 4,000 items in the collection. This is not a small-time operation. Okay. The breadth I can't, of the I can't understand that. Kind of Can you all understand? Mr. Green's vision is, is actually the fruition of what people have been dreaming about for decades. This is about the Bible. It's not about a faith tradition or a church or a denomination. It's about a book. We're trying to present the biblical narratives in a clear, objective, just descriptive way. Because people just don't even know the stories. And part of the history we're trying to tell is to do justice to the wide range of people who have claimed this book as their own, who have participated in it in survival, who have had their lives changed by it. Some of the exciting objects that we have that people would recognize are, of course, our Dead Sea Scroll fragments. Papyrus 39, it's a fragment from the Gospel of John, found at the site of Oxymetus. It is from a passage in John 8, and with its 3rd century date, that Papyrus is the earliest surviving witness for that passage in John. We have one of the largest collections in writing Dead Sea Scrolls. Really, an incredible conflation of all the Jewish communities throughout Europe, Middle East, and North Africa. The collection contains just about every significant biblical imagery uh, that has ever been printed in America. These artifacts, which deserve to be studied, are being made available at a high rate for the people who are who have spent years of their lives acquiring understanding to learn from them. There's just moments of awe. The wealth of information that they have provided related to the Bible, its 
transmission history is Museums are a contemporary commentary on our culture. So Washington, D.C. is a great location for us to be able to share the story of people all over the world. Putting ourselves in the middle of that um, holds us to quite a high standard and says that we're willing to engage on that level. To have a museum of the Bible there as part of that overall culture adds to the commentary. I really hope that they will leave there with a spark in their heart and their soul. They'll want to know more and learn more and come back. Whether they're young or old, people of faith, all ethnicities, that it will just spark something in their heart. So I'm, I'm rather bold about uh, asking people, we hope this is an encouragement to people. If we can bring greater awareness to a board of this book and its potential impact, And this, well, that's not. Examination of the text may unlock the secrets to some of these mysteries. Was the famed Tower of Babel real? And could the Israelites have built it taller than anything on earth today? Could David have killed Goliath in precisely the way the Bible describes? Did the ancients discover a miracle technique that created fire from rock? And could the Ark of the Covenant really have flown? Using a super science so mysterious, it is only today being rediscovered. By recreating supernatural phenomena, using the latest technology, and by decoding the words of the Bible itself, the forgotten technologies of the Holy Land are re-examined. Ancient discoveries are investigating the lost science of the Bible. thousands of years, the miracles described in the Holy Bible were taken to be genuine in every detail. Okay. Start playing over itself. Okay. Um, we went there for the construction side. That's the entry now. And when this, when it opens and you saw these huge bronze panels that are from the Gutenberg Bible that are on each side... And the one on the right facing it will weigh more. It weighs, do you remember, Pam? It was like 
60 tons, and the other one weighs about 25 tons. And then they're going to have um, one, one of the, uh, everything that's going to be up on the w a window that you see in front of you is going to be uh, like Codex Sinaiticus. And, and then as you go in, there's going to be one room that is set aside, and they have a uh, long-term contract for decades with the Isra Israel Antiquities Authority. And this is the only time that the Israel Antiquities Authority has allowed any of their archaeological finds to come out of Israel, and there will be a permanent display there. They're going to have a an area in there where there is a... A scribe who is authorized, who is going to be producing a a kosher scroll, so that people can go and see all that was involved in the transmission of the text, copying of the text, the writing of the text, uh, the making of the ink. All of these things were were very significant, and uh, and so that's going to going to uh, going to be there. This is what it looks like today as you go into the entry. Uh, all of their they're working on everything and it's uh, they've got about 15 months before they're going to be ready to open this is what the upper level looks like and you can see out the window right over here the uh, dome of the capitol building that's it a little closer so this is um, this is going to be remarkable but they aren't waiting until um, until they open the museum to do anything they have been working since 2012 in writing a curricula, uh, curriculum that can be used in public schools anywhere, anywhere in the world. And their mission statement is so that people will be engaged with the Bible. They're not, they're not talking about Christianity versus Judaism, Roman Catholicism versus Orthodoxy, uh, Coptic Christianity versus Assyrian Christianity. It's just about being engaged with the Bible. And we believe that if people would just read the Bible, that there will be a revival. There, people will have their lives changed. They'll come to understand the gospel if they would just engage, engage with the Bible. And so they've written this curriculum. And uh, about four years ago, they were going to field test it in a little school in Oklahoma, but the ACLU found out about it and started uh, challenging them in court, and they weren't ready for a court case. They just wanted to field test it to see if it would do anything or go anywhere. So they pulled back, but Kerry, uh, uh, what's his last name, Pam? Summers. Summers. Kerry Summers, you saw him there uh, in a couple of the pictures. He's the president of the museum, and he goes to Israel for three or four weeks out of the year, knows a lot of people in Israel, has owned an apartment uh, up near Tiberias or somewhere up in the uh, Sea of Galilee area for years. And um, he was talking about this with somebody in Israel, and somehow the connections came together, and a private school that was one of the elite private schools in Israel, in a, a town called Ramat Gan, just outside of Tel Aviv, uh, decided somehow they got connected. The mayor said, well, well, we can do that at our in our school district. We can run a trial um, tri trial for you to see how this curriculum is. So they ran that. It was highly successful. Then they did it in all of their schools, highly successful. They did it in some other schools in Ashkelon and Tel Aviv, again, highly successful. So at this point, 6,000 Israeli students have gone through this curriculum. This year, they're expanding it to uh, many other cities and towns in, in Israel. And by the end of this year, 100,000 Israeli students will have gone through this curriculum. Not only that, but they have six schools in London 
that are going to start this curriculum this year and they are working with people in Hong Kong and various other Asian areas uh, in the Philippines in order to implement this curriculum there. Of course, you can't do it in the United States. That's where we are. But the rest of the world is open to this. They, they're, uh, they want the Bible because at some level they recognize that it was the Bible that gave the foundation of moral stability and the stability of law to the Western world. And that's the foundation of our prosperity uh, is the Bible. And so this is just a remarkable thing. In fact, I'm looking into contacting a travel agent to see about putting together about a four, three or four day trip to DC. Uh, there's two or three hotels within walking distance that are, the hotels are just uh, halfway between the Holocaust Museum and the Museum of the Bible and about two blocks south of the mall. And so we could go up there, we could have tours of the museum. It'll take one person 72 hours to go through everything in the Museum of the Bible. We're not going to do that. You don't have that kind of time. But uh, one of the, the, the technology is just incredible. They're, they're, everybody goes in is going to be given an iPad. And so if you're with a group, let's say you had a family of five, everybody gets an iPad and they get their own GPS number so that you can track where all the kids, everybody else is going at any given time because they, they study, studied this and said 50% of the time people spend in museums is looking for everybody else in their party. So, and, and it will track who you are. You sign in with your email address. And then when you go back two years later, uh, it'll say, the last time you were here, you did, all, you did this. This time you need to do this. And you, it's, it's designed at different levels of learning. So if you're ignorant, don't know anything about the Bible, you, you punch that in. It gives you one course. If you know a little bit more about it, you go another track. So it's, it's very interesting. So we need to get people to engage the Bible again especially in America. So with that, open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 16. First Samuel 16. And we're going to really see a little bit more in the text now about uh, the Holy Spirit and the evil spirit that is going to be coming upon Saul. In Samuel, we've seen the first Eight chapters relate to the person of Samuel, Samuel the prophet, Samuel the last judge. And then this will be followed by uh, the first king that is anointed king over Israel under God's authorization. There was one previous king I've mentioned before, Abimelech, the son of Gideon, but he was not authorized by God, but he reigned in from Shechem for two years. We see the rise of Saul from chapters 9 through chapter 15 where he disobeys God and the kingdom is torn from him and then he's still king but we see the anointing of David in chapter 16 and the rise of David uh, from 16 to 31 and the decline of Saul. So we'll be going back and forth between the two. Last time we looked at the anointing of Samuel. The anointing of Samuel in the first 13 verses, and here is the last verse in the previous section. And so as we look at this, we see what happens to David, that when he is anointed, Samuel took the horn of oil, of olive oil, poured it over his head, rubbed it in. This is a picture of the indwelling or the coming of the Spirit upon him, and he is anointed, and that word means to 
uh, pour out the oil, but also it has the idea of somebody's officially appointed to a position by God. And the only witnesses are his brothers. Nobody else knows. I don't think anybody else knows this for some time. David is quietly uh, anointed, and then he goes back to the sheep. The Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Now, last time I was in a little bit of a hurry finishing up, but I wanted to point out that two things are important here. The first is the verb that's used here. I didn't mention the verb last time, just the preposition. The verb and the preposition are both important. The verb is salach, and some people will want to translate this to rush, that that it's used of uh, it's used of Saul, um, it's used of, excuse me, it's used of Samson, it's used of Saul, and it's used of David. Now Samson is not the best judge, right? He's the last judge in the book of Judges, and he is a womanizer. He's disobedient to his parents, disrespectful. He doesn't really care about God or God's plan. But nevertheless, at key points in his life, he did what God wanted him to do. He trusted in God and believed him so that he's listed among the heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Now, that ought to encourage every one of us, because no matter how sinful we might be, if we're trusting God, if we have a heart for God, even if we fail like David did and like Samson did, if we're trusting God at key points, then then we also would belong in that uh, list of faith heroes in Hebrews chapter 11. Sam, Samson is not your picture of a spiritually mature believer. He is mostly a spiritual failure, as is Saul. The reason I point this out is a lot, there are some people who say, well, you know, Saul really didn't look like he was much of a believer. He, uh, in fact, there are some people who think that he wasn't a believer. And they point out certain things. But the Holy Spirit comes upon him. It's the same verb that's used of Samson and used of David. And it indicates that both the only three people that are mentioned are Samson, Saul, and David. And Samson and David are both believers. And there's no example in Scripture uh, of this verb or of other actions, similar actions by the Holy Spirit coming upon an unbeliever. Now, the, the preposition tells us a lot, too. It's not internal. This isn't an indwelling of the Spirit like we have in the New Testament, where the Holy Spirit indwells inside each and every believer. It has a different uh, preposition when we come into the New Testament that indicates something internal that is going on. But these, these prepositions are important because when we look at what a demon does to somebody, in the case of Saul, you don't have that internal preposition either. It's external. And when you get to those questions people ask about demon possession, demon influence, demon oppression, that what's important is looking at the prepositions. And in the New Testament, uh, you never have a, I mean, the, what you have with demon possession is always these prepositions of going into somebody. Uh, and the, the Greek is ace erkomai, going into. And then when Jesus cast out the demon, he comes out, and that's ex erkomai. Ex means out of, ace means into. And then when Jesus cast him out, it's ek balo. That ek preposition at the beginning, that ek prefix means he comes out of. So this demon possession is clearly the uh, internal 
dwelling of a demon inside somebody, controlling their body, controlling um, uh, their, their, their functions. And that's different from demon influence. Every one of us, to some degree or another, is demonically influenced. Every one of us. Because demon influence is the thinking of Satan. It's the thinking of the world. Uh, and it involves morality and it involves immorality. And so often Christians have this idea that it's just something that's immoral. But if you, have, if you go to a very moral uh, church that doesn't believe in substitutionary atonement, you go to some mainline denomination where they believe in good works for salvation and everybody is very nice and everybody is very moral, but nobody understands the substitutionary death of Christ and they don't understand that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. They're, they're not saved. They're nice people. They're good people. They're moral people, but they're spiritually dead and therefore they're all evil people. Because their, 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 their internal nature, their sin nature has not been dealt with. They are spiritually dead and spiritually corrupt, and therefore they are evil. They are, the evil presents itself in terms of that which is horrible and immoral, and that which is also moral and, and good. Uh, many world religions emphasize morality, but that's not the, what the Bible teaches. And so it's evil because it's going to lead people to the lake of fire. And this is a, a point of real confusion for a lot of people. I remember about uh, 15, 18 years ago, I was teaching at, uh, at a meeting that was put on by a now defunct organization called the Conservative Theological Society in Fort Worth. And I was asked to present a paper on, on demon possession. And I did. I presented a paper based on what we, what Tommy and I have in our book on spiritual warfare. And this was at the very beginning of the Harry Potter popularity. And with Harry Potter being a wizard, and you have wizards and witches, and you have spells and all these things that are part of fantasy literature, uh, I really hadn't expected it. And at that time, I really wasn't well-read in Harry Potter. But I started getting these questions, well... What can we do to stop this influence of the occult through these Harry Potter books? And I said, well, I'm a little suspicious of this. I said, first of all, um, I said, we have to understand that there is a lot of demon influence in our culture that doesn't, that is much more subtle than what may come out of Harry Potter books. I said, how many people like the old television show Fathers Knows Best? A lot of people, oh, that's good, it's moral. Yeah, but where was Christ? Christ wasn't in Father's Knows Best, or my three sons. It was just good, clean morality. But that's evil if it's apart from Christ. And that is more dangerous and more destructive than anything you will read in a Harry Potter book. If you have a Christian child and they're reading Harry Potter, you know, you can talk about the fact that yet yeah, the Bible talks about people who tell fortunes and necromancers and witches, and it's overt. It's really clear to b teach them some discernment. But if they're reading Nancy Drew or Tom Swift or any of the other books that may be popular today that are for children, um, you know, they're going to get so much human viewpoint, and human viewpoint is evil through and through. And people don't understand that you can have, and most of our engagement with the world as believers is making choices. Even in politics, we're making a choice between evil one and evil two. 
And we have to decide which is going to provide peace for the church between those two options. And sometimes it's not a lot of clarity between the two options, but that's that's what we have is we're dealing with various different worldly philosophies, and we have to sometimes choose which is going to be better for the church to live under. And so we need to be very careful with that. So uh, demon influence are all of the ideas and the philosophies and the so-called common sense things that that people think, well, that just makes sense to me. That must be good. That must be right. Um, so we have that, and it's not biblical. And if it's not biblical, it's not truth. It's just uh, the product of the world system. And so we have to recognize that all of us in our carnality, all of us because of the influence of our parents and our peers and the news media and television, we have all picked up uh, wrong ideas, ideas from the cosmic system that we think sound pretty good, but they're not biblical. But if you read your Bible regularly and you study the Word, then you will develop the kind of discernment you need to check out those distinctions. So, at the end of 1 Samuel 16, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David. And I think that uh, this word salak is often translated with the word with the word prosper. The word prosper or succeed. And it, it, it's the idea that the Holy Spirit is going to empower these individuals to prosper in what God wants them to do, to succeed as king, to succeed as a judge, to succeed like uh, 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 Bezalel and Aholiab in producing the works, uh, the, the furniture for the, for the temple. Uh, I don't think it has that idea of rushing, although that is a popular way to translate in these contexts that the Holy Spirit just rushed on them. I think that when you look at the spread of word usage, that idea of prosperity or success makes a lot more sense. Uh, then we come to verse 14. There's a shift. We've talked about David in 1 through 13, and now we're going to talk about uh, Saul in uh, 14 and following. The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. It's a contrast. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And we have an interesting word there that's translated depart. It's the Hebrew word sur, which means to withdraw, to depart, to desert, to turn aside from. Um, and what's interesting in the way this the text is written is if you're looking at the last verse uh, in the chapter. Uh, and so it was whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul that David would take a harp and play it with his hand then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing or troubling spirit would depart from him. So the last verb in this section is the same verb. We have what is called in literature an inclusio. And if you're familiar with artillery, it's bracketing. This is what a, a ship, a naval ship, will do when it is trying to find a target. First, it will shoot, and if it falls short, then they'll make adjustments, and then they'll fire a second time and hopefully go beyond the target. Now they've bracketed it. They've enclosed it by those shots, and that sets up a framework, and then they're going to walk it in until they hit the target. 
Okay, that's what an inclusio is in literature. It is setting aside a particular section of Scripture so you understand that the author is, is bracketing this as, as one particular event to pay attention to. So this is all going to be about this uh, evil spirit. It's, uh, New King James translates it uh, a distressing spirit, but it really is an evil spirit. So we're told the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Now this word translated depart is, uh, is often used of the Lord or the Spirit of the Lord departing from someone uh, in the Old Testament. It's used when the Spirit of the Lord departed from Samson in Judges 16.20, uh, here with Saul in uh, 1 Samuel 16.14 and in 28.16. It's also a word that is used to describe Israel's spiritual defection, their apostasy when they fall away from grace. And you see this in passages like Second uh, Kings 10.31. Uh, but Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord. See, what immediately preceded this is God's command for Jehu to cleanse the uh, kings of the northern kingdom and he is to execute and kill everyone in the house of Ahab, which he did. And he also destroyed, burned down the temple of Baal. But, but, there's that important word when you get into kings. But Jehu took no heed after that to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. For he did not depart. There's that word that we're talking about. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam. Now, if you remember when we went through kings... Jeroboam was the first king of the northern kingdom, and as soon as he separated, they had a civil war, and as soon as he separated the ten tribes of the north from the two tribes of the south, he decided that he didn't need all of his citizens in the north marching down to the, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem to worship God. That's not going to maintain his new nation in terms of their distinct identity. So what he did was he set up alternate worship sites in uh, Bethel in the south and in Dan uh, in the far far north and he set up a golden calf in each of those sites and said this is the God that brought you out of, of Egypt this is the God so he goes back to that sin of Aaron and so the people worshipped the golden calf and that's the sin of Jeroboam so uh, Jehu did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam he continued in that apostasy in 2 Kings 14.24, uh, talking about Jeroboam II, that he also continued to follow in the idolatrous sin of Jeroboam I. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And this is stated of numerous kings in the, um, in the northern kingdom, that they did not depart. They stayed in apostasy. In Exodus 32 talks about the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai. They turned aside quickly out of the way uh, which I commanded them, and they made a golden calf. So this talks about their their apostasy. And Deuteronomy 11.16, uh, Moses warns, Take heed to yourselves, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods. So this is the word here. The uh, Spirit of God turns aside from Saul. He leaves Saul. He departs. It is a word that is roughly equivalent to that word for apostasy or departure that we have in the New, New Testament. He departs from Saul. This is a compound preposition here 
from the preposition men in the Hebrew, which means from, equivalent to ek in the Greek, and from plus the preposition im, meaning with. So he, the Spirit of the Lord departs from being with Saul, not being in Saul, okay? That maintains that distinction. And then he's replaced, though, by this, what's translated in the New King James as a distressing spirit, a distressing spirit. I don't think that's a strong enough word uh, in the... Um, uh, in, in, in English to explain what is going on here. It's a distressing spirit. The word in the Hebrew is the word ra, which normally is translated as evil or bad. And so this is uh, has historically been taken by most biblical scholars to refer to to be an adjective, and it is an adjective. It's a feminine singular adjective, and it modifies the word spirit. And it's normally been taken to refer to a demon. Now I'll come back to that thought in just a minute. It's a similar construction in Judges 9.23 that God sent a spirit of ill will. Bad translation. It's the same construction. It's a, a spirit of evil. Okay, the evil is, is an adjective describing uh, the word ruach for spirit there. And what we've seen in recent years, I think, is, is some, some odd ideas that come out of the, especially the Old Testament departments. And I've read through three commentaries that are fairly recent commentaries on Samuel that have usually been pretty good, but all three of them are espousing an idea I'd never run across uh, before on this passage, and they've gone through, they went through some pretty technical hoops in terms of Hebrew grammar to try to justify their position. I don't think it's justifiable at, at all. In fact, when I, the the work that I did trying to back up some of their claims didn't quite, um, I couldn't quite back it up. And one one individual who all of these guys have PhDs in Hebrew. They're not dumb. Uh, they're not making. Uh, easy mistake, but they bring their theology to it. And the problem here is people say, how can God send an evil spirit? Doesn't that make God culpable for evil? So they're trying to somehow make this say something else than what it says. And and, and even though they recognize the sovereignty of God over good and evil, they, they, they have their problems. And so they're trying to come up with some sort of new grammatical idea uh, but I've looked at, at a number of current and up-to-date and some of the best Hebrew lexicons, and they all identify uh, ra as an adjective, and it is defining the noun spirit. And um, that means that it is uh, talking about the kind of spirit here. And what they're trying to say is, no, it's a spirit. It, it's and they can't really define that word spirit. That's where I kept having problems. Where are you defining spirit? And they're trying to argue that this is some sort of uh, genitival um, type of of a construction that means that it's a spirit that brings forth disaster. Well, what do you mean by spirit? Uh, is this a mental attitude? God sent a mental attitude, and they don't say that. Um, but when Ruach is used, if it's not with the Holy Spirit, it's used in this kind of a context, it usually refers to a spirit being that we would refer to as as a demon. 
Uh, and um, so that's that's a new twist that's coming out today. But um, this is the same kind of thing that we see in 1 Kings 22. So hold your place there and turn with me over to 1 Kings chapter 22. This is another one of those difficult passages that a lot of people have have struggles with because of their theology, that God gives permission to Satan to do what Satan does. We see a picture of this in Job 1 and Job 2, where all of the sons of God, and that's a term for angels, because they are directly created by God. It's not a term indicating uh, that they were given birth to, uh, it's just a phrase that describes angels, uh, elect angels and fallen angels, holy angels and dem- demons. All are called sons of God. And so there are these assemblies that take place before the throne of God in heaven. And all of the sons of God, fallen angels and elect angels, assemble before God. And in Job, Satan comes forward. He's been out tra- traveling around the earth. And God says, well, have you taken a look at my servant Job? Job loves me. Job is righteous. And then Satan says, well, the only reason he obeys you is because you're so good to him. Let me take care of him for a little while, and he's not going to be so uh, happy with you, and he'll curse you. And so God gives him permission, and he says, you can do uh, whatever you want to, but don't touch him. Don't touch his health. And so he brings this suffering upon Job. His children are killed. His livestock's destroyed. Uh, real estate's destroyed. And, you know, he's in misery. Satan comes back, but, but, he, but Job refuses to curse God. So Satan comes back. There's another assembly. And God says, have you taken a look at Job lately? <laughs> Makes me think, Lord, I, I really don't want you saying, have you taken a look at West Houston Bible Church lately? Or taking a look at Robbie Dean lately. I, I don't want to hear that conversation. So, so what happens is you have these assemblies. There's elect angels and fallen angels. This is what we see in this situation in 1 Kings chapter 22. It's on the uh, eve of a battle in Ramoth Gilead. And you have Ahab and Jehoshaphat aligning themselves together. And uh, they are going to go uh, go into battle, and so uh, they uh, Jehoshaphat, who's the king of Judah, says, "Well, if we're going to go against Ramoth Gilead, then we better make sure the Lord's in it." And so he asks Ahab, "If have you consulted the prophets?" And Ahab says, "Well." Let's get the prophets together. So they get the prophets together, and all the prophets come out, and they all say, yeah, we're going to win. God says we're going to win. But there's one prophet, and he always, he's a true prophet of the Lord. His name is Micaiah. And uh, when Jehoshaphat says, isn't there still a prophet of Yahweh here, that's in verse 7, that we may inquire of him? So the king of Israel, that's Ahab, says to Jehoshaphat, yeah, there's one man, Micaiah. And he is a real pain. He, you, we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. That's that same word rot that we have uh, in First uh, uh, Samuel 16. 
And Jehoshaphat rebukes him and says, let not the king say such things. So they bring in Micah, Micaiah, and he starts off with a little tongue-in-cheek, and he says, yeah, the Lord told me you're going to win, and Ahab sees right through it and says, no, tell me the truth. Tell me the truth. Tell me what is really going on. And I want you to just look at uh, verse 19. Then Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. And all the host of heaven standing by on his right hand and all his left. That would include holy and elect angels. And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall, that means to be killed, at Ramoth Gilead? So one said this and one said that. Then a, and see, Micaiah is talking about what he sees going on in heaven before the throne of God. All these angels are there, and they're discussing this. God has said, who's going to go forth as a deceiving spirit? And the Lord says, um, then a spirit came forward, in verse 21 says, then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And then the Lord said in verse 22, in what way? So he that is this angel or fallen angel actually says i will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets now we know by the function that this guy this demon is going to cause deception and going to lie and so that's why we know that he is a fallen angel not a holy angel and he says um, i'll go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets and the lord said you shall persuade him and prevail go and do so it god is giving using his permissive will to allow Satan, again, just like in Job, to go and uh, do these kinds of things. And so this is a function of how God uses uh, evil spirits. Satan can't do one thing unless God gives him permission because God is the ultimate sovereign ruler of the universe, and even Satan can't just go uh, persecute Christians or persecute anyone without without God's God's permission. And so uh, God is using this evil spirit to discipline Saul. And here we have a really intense word, ba'at, which means to be overtaken by sudden terror, to ter- be terrified or tormented or afflicted. This would be mental torment or affliction or distress. Now, you may wake up in the middle of the night and think this applies to you, but it doesn't, okay? This is extreme. A recent intensive study on this concluded that it means this is an extreme fear that completely incapacitates someone. It's not used anywhere else in the former prophets or in the Pentateuch, but it is used later on in Isaiah 21. My heart wavered. Fearfulness frightened me. How's that for what might appear to be a redundancy to intensify the idea. Frighten me, that's the same word, ba'at. Psalm 18.4, the pangs of death surrounded me and the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. This is deep fear. You may have this kind of fear if you just anticipate what it might be like to be captured by ISIS. We're bordering on that kind of territory, okay? Uh, Paralyzing fear. So, this is what is going on. Now, what we've seen in this passage then is that we're told that God, that the, the Holy Spirit leaves Saul and goes upon David. 
And that word there, when it talks about the, the Spirit of the Lord departing Saul, I want to remind you of what was said about this earlier. I mentioned the word Salak earlier. In 1 Samuel 10, 6, we're told that the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, come upon Saul in this way, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. This is a powerful verb to use here. This would not happen to an unbeliever. And then again in verse 10, it uses that same phrase for Saul, the Spirit of God came upon him. And a third time in 11.6, three times this is said of Saul that the Spirit of God came upon him. And the only other two examples of this in the Scripture are both clearly believers, Samuel and David. So after this happens, and he's, he's a basket case, he's paralyzed by fear, then Saul's servant said to him, Surely a distressing spirit, an evil spirit from God, is terrifying you. And it's these same words, Ra for evil and Ruach for spirit. Those words run all through this particular section. So the servants have some discernment as to what must be going on here. Uh, today they would say, well, this is a medical problem, this is a psychiatric problem, we need to medicate them. Um, I don't think this kind of thing would necessarily happen today. Uh, that's another aspect of studying demonology. But I, it clearly was happening in Saul's case. This doesn't happen to anybody else in the Old Testament. There's not one other person in the Old Testament to whom this, takes, this happens like this. But it's not demon possession. It is a severe form of demonic oppression. So they say, we have a solution. Let our master now command your servants. We need to find somebody who's skillful. The word there in the Hebrew indicates somebody who's, who really knows how to play the harp. Somebody who's experienced, who's just masterful at it. We need a skillful player on the harp. Well, let me tell you, playing good music is not the key to getting rid of a de demon and a demon-possessed person. They can listen to the best music in the world, and that's not how Jesus cast out demons. So this isn't talking about demon possession. Uh, it's talking about soothing his soul because of the oppression that's going on. And it shall be that he will play it, that is, the, the harp player will play it with his hand, when the evil spirit from God is upon you, and you shall be well. And this is the word tov. Tov, some people think tov, when God says it was all good, when he created everything, that meant it was all moral. It was righteous. Therefore, Satan fell after those initial seven days of the creation week. And I've said for years you can't import a morality into the word tov. It's not saying that uh, the, when the distressing spirit of God uh, leaves you, you'll be moral. It's not saying that. It's not saying you'll be righteous. It's saying you'll be as you ought to be, as you're designed to be. Um, if it has a moral sense, then when God says it's not tov for a man to be alone then if that's moral, then it's not, it's not moral for a man to be single. I don't know about you, but that, that has a lot of bad implications. So Saul tells them to go find someone, and they go out and they say, well, we know somebody, the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. He's skillful in playing. That's the same word. He knows how to play. He's also a... A mighty man of valor. He's a warrior. He's a man of war. And he is prudent in speech and a handsome person. 
So he's good-looking, he's skilled, he's been trained. Um, he can come, and he, he's a manly man. He is a real man. He's not, uh, not going to come in here and uh, uh, be less than what should be, should be a servant of the king. So they sent for David. He was with the sheep. Jesse sent to sent to David, sent him out with uh, and sent with him uh, groceries to Saul, bread and wine and a young goat uh, as as a gift to Saul. And so we're told that David came, and he became his armor bearer. Uh, we're told that Saul loved him greatly. See what we see in the first part of the chapter is God raises up David through Samuel, and it's private. But what happens here is, as a result of this evil spirit, David is brought out of the sheepfold into the uh, center of the court, and he will be elevated to this position by Saul himself. So he's going to be in a position to learn about what is going on in the court of Saul. And then as the passage ends, so it was whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed. It's it's a word. It's the verb ravak here that indicates uh, getting relief, but it's related to the word for wind or breath to that verb. So he's it's just getting a breath of fresh air, as it were, in our idiom. And this evil spirit would sur would depart from him. And so what I want to do next time after we've gone through this is talk about, go back to talk about an introduction to demonism and the angelic conflict and because we're going to see this uh, repeat itself several more times in the coming chapters. So we need to plug this in to a, a good understanding of God's sovereignty, the angelic conflict, and demonology. So we'll do that next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight, to be reminded of the importance of knowing your word, reading your word, becoming familiar with your word, that we might hide it in our hearts. Father, we pray that we might be like David and not like Saul, that we might focus on you as the focal point of everything in our life, to live our lives, to please you in everything we do and everything we think and everything we say. And Father, we pray that you might challenge us to grow spiritually and mature, that the character of Christ might be manifest in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.